0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak at Gordon College, which I've not visited since I taught a group of Methodist ministers that met here, as Professor Wilson mentioned, in the summer of 1976. Let me see, that was uh, 33 years ago, so I must have been minus four at the time. Uh, I thank all those also who have made this occasion possible, but especially Professor Wilson who has done so much for the cause of Jewish-Christian relations over the years. That a Christian institution like Gordon College would host a series entitled Exploring Psalms with the Rabbis, speaks, I suspect, to the effect of Professor Wilson's presence here over the years. It surely augurs well for the future of Jewish-Christian relations in America. It also speaks well of the commitment of your college to the following proposition affirmed on its website, If scholarship is to proceed without coercion, there must be freedom within our commitment to raise questions and explore diverse viewpoints. So I'll be speaking today about that uh, psalm, the ninth verse of which is labeled by the Boston Globe, one of the ten worst uh, biblical passages, and uh, I hope you won't think it's one of the ten worst biblical scholars that's been chosen to address that. The psalm about which Professor Wilson has asked me to speak this morning is one of the most uh, beautiful, but as I just said also, and he just said, uh, most problematic. On the screen, you see the text as the new translation of the Jewish Publication Society renders it, and as we just read it. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, sat and wept, as we thought of Zion. There on the poplars, or willows, we hung up our lyres, For our captors asked us there for songs, our tormentors for amusement. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue stick to its palate if I cease to think of you. If I do not keep Jerusalem in memory, even at my happiest hour, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they cried, Strip her, strip her, to her very foundations. Fair Babylon, you predator, a blessing on him who repays you in kind what you have inflicted on us. A blessing on him who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. One of the most astute scholars of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament of our generation, or at least mine, Richard Clifford, puts it well. Psalm 137, Father Clifford writes, has the distinction of having one of the most beloved opening lines and the most horrifying closing line of any psalm. As I see it, my job this morning is to account for both the beloved opening and the horrifying closing, showing how they really are not so far apart as one might at first think. By the time I've reached my own closing, I am sure that I shall not have made the end of Psalm 137 beloved, but perhaps I can make it less horrifying, or at least <clears throat> excuse me, more understandable. The first step is to explain the historical background. The poem describes those whom the Babylonians deported from the land of Israel after they conquered it in 587 BCE. To the minds of the exiles themselves, at least as reflected in this psalm, The catastrophes of that year were twofold. The first was the loss of the Promised Land itself, the deportation of the exiles from the country that Jewish tradition would come to call Eretz Yisrael, the Land of Israel, over to Babylonia, by whose rivers or irrigation canals they now find themselves. The second momentous event was the burning of the House of the Lord, the Beit Hashem, the Temple atop Mount Zion, which was thought to serve as the cosmic capital and the only site to which offerings to God might legitimately be brought. To this day, Jews continue to commemorate both events, and one cannot understand either Psalm 137 or the subsequent tradition of rabbinic Judaism adequately without exploring the question of why the loss of the land and temple was thought to be so catastrophic, and why, to state the same point another way, The traditional Jewish vision of redemption involves the restoration of both of them. Neither the God of Israel nor the people of Israel, in their degradation or in their glory, can be understood without considerable focus on the land of Israel and the temple city of Jerusalem. The loss of these things was thus more than a political defeat. Much more painful is the fact that that it, through the reliability of God, and his promises into doubt. The savagery of the Babylonian assault on Jerusalem in the summer of 587 or maybe 586 surely added to the anguish of the defeated Judahites. Kings and and Jeremiah speak of a siege that began on the tenth day of the tenth month, causing a famine that had become acute six months later. To this day, the tenth day of the tenth month, known as Azarabah Tevet, is a fast day in the Jewish calendar. It falls in late December or January. Of course, the most important day of mourning in the Jewish liturgical year is Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the fast day that falls in midsummer. As for the king himself, Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, here is the description in Kings. Then the wall of the city was breached. All the soldiers left the city by night through the gate between the double walls, which is near the king's garden. The Chaldeans were all around the city And the king set out for the Arava, down to the south of Jerusalem. But the Chaldean troops pursued the king. Chaldean meaning Babylonian troops pursued the king. And they overtook him in the steps of Jericho as his entire force left him and scattered. They captured the king and brought him before the king of Babylon at Rivla. And they put him on trial. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Then Zedekiah's eyes were put out. He was chained in bronze fetters and he was brought to Babylon. That's from 2 Kings 25. To understand the gravity of the loss of the temple and the temple city of Jerusalem that the Jews sustained in 587 and again at the hands of the Romans in 70 CE, we must recall that a temple in the ancient Near Eastern world was not simply a place of worship, it was also the place, the palace of the god the place where he was enthroned and his kingship made manifest, and a locus in which his presence was uniquely available and which was thus suffused with holiness, material holiness. This is not to say that he or she, for goddesses had temples too, was confined to his temple as we are confined to this room right now. Rather, in some sense difficult for us to expound, the God who was everywhere was nonetheless available in his temple in a special way and with unparalleled intensity. In the religion of ancient Israel, after a certain point, there arose a further complication. It became forbidden to offer sacrifice to the Lord, to the God of Israel, outside the one place that he had chosen, which was understood to be the holy city of Jerusalem. However, modern people may feel about sacrifice, To the ancient Israelites who accepted the Deuteronomic theology, the loss of the Temple meant the loss of the possibility of serving God as he had specified with animal and vegetable offerings made in the Jerusalem Temple. So it was not only his presence but also his service that the Babylonian conquest had made impossible. How can one calculate a loss that large? Please note that the terminology here is confusing. Beginning in the 19th century, some Jewish groups began using the term temple to refer to their synagogues. A contemporary Jewish temple, however, is a different institution for the Bible and subsequent Jewish tradition meant by the term temple, Beit mikdash). A modern temple or synagogue makes no claims of uniqueness, for example, as not a place in which sacrifice takes place. A synagogue by any name is still a synagogue phenomenologically. Given the preciousness of the Jerusalem temple, we should not be surprised to discover that ancient Israelites longed to glimpse it, to gaze at it, to visit it, to absorb its message, and to linger in its precincts. This is a longing to which the book of Psalms gives ample attestation. Psalm 48, for example, seems to report the profound experience of a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. In your temple, God, we meditate upon your faithful care. The praise of you, God, like your name, reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with with, with beneficence. Let Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, rejoice. Let the towns of Judah exult because of your judgments. Walk around, Zion. Walk around the Temple Mount. Circle it. Count its towers. Take note of its ramparts. Go through its citadels that you may recount it to a future age. For God, he is our God forever. He will lead us evermore. That's Psalm 48. Another psalmist gives powerful and and extraordinarily beautiful testimony to the experience of protection and trust and faith that a visit to the temple provoked in him. How lovely is your place, O Lord of hosts! I long, I yearn for the courts of the Lord. My body and soul shout for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself in which to set her young <clears throat> excuse me, near your altar, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Happy are those who dwell in your house, they forever praise you, your house meaning the temple. And later in the same poem, better one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else, I would rather stand at the threshold of God's house than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's from Psalm eighty four. It bears mention nowadays <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> It bears mention nowadays that Psalm 84 verse five, Happy are those who dwell in your house, they forever praise you, Selah," begins an important prayer that appears three times in the daily Jewish liturgy. <clears throat> it was probably poems like these that the captors of the exiles taunted them to sing in Psalm 137. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing to us, in other words, about the beauties of the temple we have now burnt down, about the city of your God whose walls we have raised, about all the gold, silver, and bronze vessels with which you served your God and which we have now carried off to Babylon, our own royal city, our own temple city. And most of all, sing to us about the protection the God enthroned in your temple offers you, The great trust and happiness you experience in his presence. Admit, in other words, that your faith and trust were misplaced and recognize the theological implications of your defeat. The next verse, How can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil, may be addressed to the sadistic Babylonians, but I think it is better read as the thought that the Jewish exiles expressed among themselves. It is hard to imagine that they could have refused the demand of their captors they could have refused the demand of their captors The words alien soil admat nehar in Hebrew highlight a dimension of the captives plight that requires comment What exactly is the status of these Jews in Babylonia <clears throat> They are not prisoners of war for the war is over nor are they refugees for they have not fled Rather, they have been captured and deported to all appearances with no hope of return. They are therefore not immigrants like most of the people who have come to the United States from Europe, Asia, and elsewhere in the New World over the centuries, for they have not come willingly. Perhaps the closest analogy familiar to us would be with those who were sold into slavery in Africa and shipped to the Western Hemisphere against their will, Imagine that on top of all the indignities and hardships that these African slaves faced, they also had to deal with masters who taunted them with the memory of the glories of the land they had left and would never see again. Sing to us about Africa. Tell us about its beautiful landscapes, mighty kingdoms, and great cities. The analogy with the African slaves raises an interesting question. Eventually, the Africans became African Americans, They lost their native African languages and their native religions and came to speak only English and to convert to Christianity. To be sure, their English had a special flavor, as did their Christianity, which was hardly simply a reproduction of the faith of their owners. But even so, they made the transition and became Americans, often proud Americans, many of them eager, for example, to serve in the armed services. Why did the Babylonian Jews not make the same transition? Why did they not become Babylonians? <clears throat> well, probably some did. Probably some forgot Zion and Jerusalem, ceased to practice the religion of Israel, and gradually lost their native Hebrew, replacing it with the Aramaic or Akkadian of their Gentile neighbors. Aramaic was later to become a major Jewish language, even for, most, even for the most religious Jews. But the author of Psalm 137 is emphatically not of their camp he finds Babylonian soil alien and solemnly swears never to forget Jerusalem. We've already explored one reason for this, the special status of Zion and Jerusalem in Israelite theology. This religious dimension makes the yearning for those places something infinitely higher, more serious and enduring than simply the longing of another ethnic group for its idealized homeland. But the term alien soil reminds us that the homeland in question was more than just the capital city that the Babylonians had destroyed in 587 BCE. It was, in fact, the whole promised land, the holy land, the whole land of Israel, not just Jerusalem. That the sins of the people of Israel might cause them to lose the land of Israel is an eventuality that the Hebrew Bible, especially its Deuteronomic tradition, contemplates. Israel's tenure in the land is thus conditional. It depends upon obedience to the commandments. But contrary to what often he, one, one often hears, this is not the whole story. The other side appears in the unconditional covenantal promise to give the land to their progeny, the God who had sworn to the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Deuteronomy 2, for all its language of conditionality, we read that even when Israel's idolatry will cause them to be expelled from the land, God will give them another chance. He will not fail you, nor will he let you perish. He will not forget the covenant which he made on oath with your fathers. Deuteronomy 4.31 <clears throat> For those who had faith in the God of this covenant, exile in Babylonia was not the end of the story. The possibility of return remained alive. Return to God and return to the land of Israel. In Psalm 5, the psalmist takes an oath of his own. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to my palate, if I cease to think of you, if I do not keep Jerusalem in memory, even at my happiest hour. <clears throat> it is not enough that God remembers his promises. The human community must remember them as well. Hard though that be when Jerusalem or Zion wants the joy of all of the earth, as another psalm calls it, is in ruins, and when the community that loved it is now in captivity hundreds of miles away and in in danger of losing its identity. Perhaps a better translation of the last two verses is, if I do not place Jerusalem above my greatest joy. It is interesting that the psalmist does not deny that joy is possible for him, even in that dire situation, but he pledges that he will not allow whatever personal joys he experiences to eclipse the memory of the holy city so much for the depth of his own commitment. But what keeps an affirmation like his alive over the centuries? Why today, more than two and a half millennia after Psalm 137 was written, are there still Jews all over the world for whom Jerusalem and its well-being are central passions? A major part of the answer lies in the way Judaism anchors its affirmations of faith into its practices. Assuring that when the practice is done, the affirmation is made and thus not forgotten. <clears throat> to give a specific example, note that the last act of the traditional wedding service is the groom shattering a glass with his foot in memory of the destruction of the temple. Some have the custom of actually reciting 137, 5 through 6 beforehand. What could be a greater moment of joy than one's wedding? Put your hand down, that wasn't a real question. Uh, Yet the destruction of the of the uh, temple and its city is not forgotten even in this happiest of hours. Generation after generation, the Jewish community enacts the psalmist's oath. In a targum, that is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, we find a different understanding of verses five through six. It is not the psalmist here who is vowing never to forget Jerusalem; it is God. According to to this targum, a bat kol, a heavenly voice, relays God's response to the exiles in their agony. More specifically, he answers their question, how can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil by swearing that he will never forget Jerusalem or allow any of his own joys, God's own joys, to eclipse the memory of the holy city? This is not the plain sense, of course, but both Judaism and Christianity employ biblical passages in ways that are more imaginative and creative than plain-sense exegesis can accommodate. And why did that question, how can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil, provoke, in this reading, provoke God to reaffirm his own commitment to Jerusalem? Here the Targum tells us that the Levites, the hereditary temple singers, had bitten off their thumbs, thus rendering that question rhetorical. The fuller version of this tradition is developed at length in a collection of rabbinic midrash, that is, imaginative interpretations and expansions of biblical passages produced by the authorities in the Talmud or their successors. This is text B on the screen. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor who sacked Jerusalem and instigated the exile, asked, Why do you sit weeping? And he called to the tribe of Levi, the temple singers, and said to them, Get ready, While we eat and drink, I want you to stand and strike your harps before me as you struck them in your temple before your God. Do before me what you would have done before God in your temple. The Levites looked at one another and said, Is it not enough of a torment for us that by our sins we destroyed his temple? Our sins brought about this destruction. Must we now strike our harps for this dwarf? Not meant positively. I think there's a pejorative uh, touch there. Thereupon they all stood up with one, and with one accord hung their harps upon the willows by the river, or in your translation, the poplars, and then putting their thumbs into their mouths with extraordinary willpower, they either mangled their thumbs or bit them off. If you doubt the amount of willpower that takes, try that. Put your thumb in your mouth and just try to bite it off. It takes tremendous willpower. Uh, so I'm told. Uh, now, why do they read it this way? Scripture does not say, We shall not sing. Lo nashir doesn't say that. It says, "But how can we sing?" Ech how can we sing? Then the Le- Levites showed the Babylonians their fingers and said, "Do you know, O Nebuchadnezzar, that in wearing manacles as strong as iron is, our fingers were mangled? Look, how can we sing? By enslaving us in these manacles and so you, 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 you've warped our fingers, our thumbs. We can How can we possibly sing?" Thereupon, the Holy One, blessed be, He said. You showed extraordinary willpower when you mangled your thumbs. As you lived the answers to Jeremiah's and Zion's questions concerning my forsaking and my forgetting, because both in the book of Jeremiah and again in, in the book of Lamentations, we read, and in uh, uh, Isaiah, we read uh, questions uh, to God. Why, how could you forget? How could you, how could you do this? Uh, questions, uh, answers to Jeremiah's and Zion's questions concerning my forsaking and my forgetting, answers which I did not give to you, I, I now give to you. In the words of scripture, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Nay, more, because you showed such extraordinary willpower in what you did to the thumbs of your right hands, I too say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. In other words, it's God who makes those affirmations in response to the refusal of the Levite singers, the Levitical singers, to uh, 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 oblige their uh, Babylonian tormentors, specifically uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The effect of this Midrash is to reaffirm solidarity between God and the Jewish people, even in their humiliation in in Babylonia. Their phenomenal willpower in resisting the tyrant and upholding the memory and sanctity of Zion and Jerusalem evokes a reaffirmation from God of his own commitment to those sacred places. Jerusalem is often said to be sacred to three faiths Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And as a broad first statement, this is surely true. Apart from the Western Wall that held up the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, sacred to Jews, we must reckon with the Church of the Sepulchre, for example an important destination of Christian pilgrims since the fourth century, and with the Dome of the Rock, the Islamic shrine that dominates the skyline of the old city of Jerusalem, completed after the Arabs conquered Jerusalem in 691 CE. One also thinks of the kingdom of Jerusalem established in 1099 by devout Christian warriors eager to reverse the Muslim conquests. Although the Christians lost Jerusalem itself to the Muslims under Saladin, In 1187, the Crusader Kingdom lasted about another hundred years after that. All this would seem to bear out the claim that Jerusalem is sacred to three faiths. What this all leaves out is the question of proportion. Is Jerusalem equally central to each of these three traditions? Let me quote a story that suggests otherwise. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter brokered a deal between Israel and Egypt. Among other things, the peace agreement established diplomatic relations between the two states, which had gone to war four times in 25 years, and required Israel to return the Sinai, a massive land about nine times its own size, to Egypt. I quote now from an account by Ambassador, Ambassador Yehuda Avner, who worked for the Israeli Prime Minister. At the very end of Prime Minister Begin's successful Camp David talks with Jimmy Carter and Anwar Sadat in 1978, Literally minutes before the signing ceremony, the American president president had approached Begin, the Israeli prime minister, with what he called just one final formal item. Sadat said the president was asking that Begin put his signature to a simple letter committing him to place Jerusalem on the negotiating table of the final peace accord. I refuse to accept the letter, let alone sign it, rumbled Begin. If I forgot thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning, said Begin to the President of the United States, and may my tongue cleave to my mouth, he was quoting from another translation of Psalm 137, 5-6. This brought an admon- 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 admonishment of the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington, telling him in so many words to mind his own business and saying Carrington should open his Bible and read the first book of Kings, chapter 2 verse 11, where you will find that King David moved his capital from Hebron, where he had reigned for seven years, to Jerusalem, where he ruled for another 33 years. And this at a time, 3,000 years ago, when the civilized world had never heard of London. A little shtach to Lord Carrington there. Uh, Jerusalem is an epic. It is the wellspring of a civilization. This is, this is what uh, apparently uh, Begin said. Jerusalem is an epic. It is a well, the wellspring of a civilization. Without Jerusalem, civilization... The spiritual history of the world would be stagnant. To us, Jerusalem is family. Has anyone heard of a daughter or a son of a Saladin ever fasting each year in memory of ancient Jerusalem's anguish? Not a one. Has anyone ever heard of a son of a crusader who breaks a glass at his wedding ceremony in memory of ancient Jerusalem's torment? Not a one. How could you not? Ha- how could you have heard? when throughout its 3,000-year history, Jerusalem has been capital to no one but the Jews. How could you not have heard? When throughout its 3,000-year history, Jerusalem has been capital to no one but the Jews. So it was, so it is, so it shall ever be, in the words of Menachem Begin. Please note that I did not cite this in order to argue for the practical political point that it makes. The idea of a simple one-to-one correspondence between scriptural and other traditional religious claims and the demands of complex political issues, is simplistic, in the best of cases. In the Jewish tradition, an enormous amount of authoritative literature mediates between the biblical texts and any contemporary application. Jews cannot authentically engage in the familiar American practice of simply citing biblical verses in support of a particular policy, left-wing, right-wing, or whatever, as if doing so resolved the issue for either the secular state or religious people within it. The rabbis of Talmudic times give enormous weight to human interpretation and are exceedingly careful in how they derive practical norms from scriptural texts. One of the direst mistakes one can make about Judaism is to assume that its Bible can be approached without any regard for the authoritative interpretations of rabbinic tradition. Unfortunately, that mistake is as common as it is dire. As for the contemporary issue of Jerusalem, I personally can imagine that with goodwill on both sides— a disposition could theoretically be made in which some parts of the city are under Palestinian arab sovereignty and without a physical re- redivision of the city or denying any group access to its holy sites a vastly more territory is now defined as jerusalem than the city ever occupied in antiquity my point in citing prime minister begin's response rather is that in drawing uh, in asking the question of what Uh, descendant of crusaders or their Muslim antagonists ever fasted in memory of uh, ancient Jerusalem's anguish or broke a glass in memory of ancient Jerusalem's torment, he suggests there is something in Judaism that calls into, into deep question the familiar notion that the city is sacred to three faiths with the implication to the same degree and with the same consequences for the identity of each group. I said at the outset that I would uh, try to deal with what Father Clifford calls the most horrifying closing line of any psalm. I better take a drink before I do that. And think fast. The end of the psalm reads like this, you will recall. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they cried, stripper, stripper, to her very foundations. Fair Babylon, you predator, a blessing on him who repays you in kind, A bless, uh, what you have inflicted on us, a blessing on him who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. The uh, anger against the Edomites in verse 8 has to do with their having joined the Babylonians in the attack on Jerusalem. This is all the more outrageous and all the more painful if we recall the tradition that the Edomites are descended from Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, or Israel. It is hard to imagine a greater uh, greater sense of being alone and abandoned than the moment when one's twin joins in the attack. But what about verse 9, that most horrifying closing line of any psalm, that contestant to be one of the top ten bad biblical verses. What makes it especially horrifying to us is the fact that it calls for the violent death of innocent babies. The curse, however, is not directed at the babies, it is directed at their mother, the predator Babylon, personified as a woman. When this, what the psalmist wishes on the sadistic oppressor of his people and destroyer of his city is the worst fate he can imagine for a woman to witness helplessly the violent death of her own infants. Note the symmetry between the fate wished upon Babylon and the fate that the Babylonians inflicted upon the last king of Zedekiah, whose sons they slaughtered before his very eyes, then going on to blind him. In the Jewish tradition, we find discomfort with the closing lines of this psalm, not surprisingly, along with efforts to address it through creative interpretation. The Targum, the Aramaic translation that I mentioned a few moments ago, ascribes verse 7 not to the psalmist himself, but to the angel Michael in verse 8, that most horrifying closing line of any psalm, uh, it similarly ascribes, or verse 9, it similarly ascribes to the angel Gabriel. The effect of this is to take the exaction of retribution against the Edomites and Babylonians out of ordinary human events and to ascribe it to divine intervention. Some of the great medieval Jewish commentators, such as Rabbi David Kimchi Radak, and Rabbi Menachem and Meiri, both of them in a Provence, see the fulfillment of this verse in, 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 uh, in, in the Persian and Median triumph over Babylonia that happened in the second half of the sixth century B.C.E. It was that military triumph that enabled Jews to return to the land of Israel. So this is not uh, this is this is uh, seen as uh, part of a general providential course of events in which God is engineering the downfall of Babylonia, which in fact did happen uh, around 539 BCE. One can, of course, hope and pray that a regime like that of Babylonia would change for the better on its own, without the need for violence against it. It is my sad duty to point out that this very seldom, if ever, happens. The more usual course by which a violent and oppressive regime falls involves armed assaults upon it. That is what brought down the Confederacy and slavery with it in our own country and what brought down Hitler's Third Reich in Germany, for example. When do contemporary Jews recite Psalm 137? Well, since most contemporary Jews are quite secular and quite illiterate about the details of the Jewish tradition, the easy answer is never. Among those who observe traditional Jewish customs, however, our psalm is recited at the beginning of the grace after meals on weekdays. That is, if a Jew has eaten bread on a day that is not a Sabbath, new moon, or festival, or a wedding, or other celebration, he or she may have the custom of reciting our sad poem at the end of the meal. If, however, the day is a Sabbath, new moon, new moon that was the first day of the month, uh, festival, or other joyous celebration, then another psalm is, instead, is recited instead, Psalm 126, which reads as follows. This is text C uh, on the overhead. <clears throat> a song of ascent, When the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we see it as in a dream. Our mouths shall be filled with laughter, our tongues with uh, songs of joy. Then shall they say among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord will do great things for us. We shall rejoice." Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like watercourses in the Negev, like dry wadis filling up in the desert. Those who sow in tears shall reap with songs of joy. Though he goes along weeping, carrying the seed bag, he shall come back with songs of joy, carrying his sheaves. Psalm 126. The two Psalms, one for humdrum weekday meals and one for joyous celebrations, may seem like opposites, the first describing the agony and humiliation of exile, the second the joy of return and restoration. But in a deeper sense, the two psalms, like the two experiences and the two historical moments they portray, are profoundly interconnected. Thank you very much.